This is Meatless, a podcast about eating from how we get to next. I'm Alicia Kennedy, a food and drink writer. I'll be having conversations with chefs, writers, and more about how their personal and political beliefs determine whether or not they eat meat. The show asks the question, how do identity, culture, economics, and history affect a diet? In this episode, part two of the trip to Chicago from the Ace Hotel to consider what makes a good vegan city, I talked to Natalie Slater, Valeria Taylor, and Tim Masaryk. First, Slater of Bacon Destroy discusses her growth into a professional vegan as the marketing manager for Upton's Naturals. I grew up in Joliet, which is a city about an hour south of Chicago. Um, we're very adamant about being a city and not being a suburb. <laughs> and um, I grew up, you know, pretty typical of people my age. I'm a latchkey kid. I'm the oldest of three. So both my parents were working. Um, a lot of times we ate like whatever I could make for everybody as a, you know, 12 year old getting home. So we ate a lot of like frozen things, um, lots of things in nugget form. Um, but when my parents cooked, it was, uh, my dad liked to make like big stir fries. And so I had, it was a mix of like things made from scratch when they had time and then things that were like fast and convenient. Um, so pretty typical American diet, I think. It wasn't until she moved to Chicago that she became vegan. I had become vegetarian like late in my senior year of high school, um, mostly because of the music I was into. I, I listened to a lot of like hardcore and um, a lot of the shows were at Krishna temples. And so I kind of got exposed to the idea and the food. And then when I moved to Chicago, there was this really big sort of like late 90s, early 2000s vegan boom happening, um, especially kids that were going to DePaul University here. There were a lot of vegans at DePaul. Those were the kids I hung out with the most. That switch forced her into learning how to make her own food. The biggest challenge was that I didn't know how to cook. And I was in college and I was poor. So trying to learn how to cook and figure out how to afford things um, and not really be able to buy a lot of the ready-made things. So really like figuring out how to make things from scratch. Kind of early, early inter internet where maybe you could wander into a message room and find a recipe, but... A lot of it was trial and error. So really just that, like not, under, like not understanding how food worked. <laughs> I got into it when I didn't have much money. I was, I was working in a cafe and going to school and having to figure out how to make burritos for, you know, $3 a, a serving or whatever that, um, that was really helpful in, in that, like, figuring out how to make things and how to save money and how to make it work. So I think if you are buying a lot of convenient foods and going out to eat a lot, it can be really expensive, but I'm not, I'm not saying necessarily that I'm glad that I was ever that broke at any point in my life, but I think it forced me to create, get creative and, and to learn. Slater began her blog Bacon Destroy in 2006, writing recipes and creating guides to vegan dining in Chicago right after the birth of her son. Well, I'd started it as sort of just like a, 
a way of communicating with my friends and family as a new mom and, and kind of living away from everybody in my life. And just, I would write about what my son was doing at that point. And, um, and I was watching a lot of cooking shows. So I started making recipes and sometimes well, along with the update of like what he was doing, it would be like, and I made these brownies and here's the recipe. Um, and after a little while I started getting comments from people that weren't my family that were another new mom or whatever. And, you know, they had discovered it and said, I'm a mom with a lot of tattoos or I'm, a, I'm a vegan mom or what, whatever we had in common. And, um, and I was like, Oh, wow, this is, this might be something. To Slater, there's no question that Chicago is a great city for vegans, despite the bad rap. I wonder if people who say that are, have no access to like Happy Cow or <laughs> any of the many, many articles that have been written about like the top 10, top 15, top 20 vegan things you can eat in the city. There are a lot of strictly vegan restaurants here. There's, um, there's Chicago Raw, there's Alice and Friends, there's Upton's Break Room, there's No Bones, there's Native Foods, and those are all just vegan. That's not even the vegetarian restaurants, which there's a lot more of. And I think something that's really cool about Chicago is that um, even more conventional restaurants have a pretty solid vegan offering. There's a bar called Moonlighter that has a whole separate menu with like lots of really creative stuff too. Like you're not getting the portobello sandwich. They're not, you know, it's not like one sad burger. It's like creative, like street tacos and like cool stuff. And we have an all vegan pizza place here and there's, there's a lot of options. So I'm protective, but I, I've heard that before. I think people, um, Maybe they came here 20 years ago. I don't know why anyone would have that opinion. but And Chicago's home to the National Vegetarian Museum as well. I came to Tim Masaryk of the blog Laudian Doof's work through Twitter, where he thankfully seems to appreciate my rather caustic readings of food, media, and culture. When I mentioned that I was coming to Chicago, we got in touch, and he told me about Valeria Taylor's Loba Pastry, that she's a brilliant baker whose shop always stocks unlabeled vegan items alongside traditional pastries. That for Halloween, she made pig's blood tarts. This contrast, coupled with the fact that I generally love all bakers more than I love other people, fascinated me. We all sat down at Loba to discuss food and their city right before Taylor was getting ready for her Christmas menu. I made uh, monkey bread uh, stuffed with uh, candied sweet potatoes. And what was the other thing? Uh, pumpkin cream stuffed financier with like marshmallows and like buttercream on top. It was very elaborate, um, but it was it was really good. It was really good. Yeah, I'm doing cookies and Queen Amon for Christmas, uh, but I'm doing a vegan ver version actually. The idea of a vegan Queen Amon blows my mind. For a fat, Taylor is using Earth Balance, a non-dairy butter I usually loathe, but she swears by it. I've been playing around with different types of like fats for laminating a vegan pastry. And to be completely honest, um, for laminating, the thing that works the best is, um, what's it called? Earth Balance. Oh. That, yeah, that fake butter, yeah. it's, it's the best. Because it's, it's closer to the consistency and you kind of want to keep it... Um, I mean, the idea of laminating a pastry is that you have to have... Uh, like butter that is sort of solid so you can keep it 
as a sheet solid in between two pieces of dough. And you can't do that with oil. You can't do that with anything else except for anything that it's butter. Um, so earth balance is the easiest thing. And what I found that is that you cannot do like a tr traditional lamination with it. You know, there's this very specific way that you laminate doughs uh, because of the French decided that that's what you were supposed to do. Um, you can't really do that with natural balance because it's not butter. So um, I was reading about different techniques of like what other countries did to have something flaky instead of laminating. Like before the French decided that you were going to laminate a pastry a certain way, there was other countries that figured out techniques to have flaky pastries that didn't require lamination. So I've been playing around with those and I'm going to do a combination of both for the vegan Queen of Man. Uh, it's so... One example that I'm thinking of is sfogliatelle. It's an um, Italian pastry. Um, and it basically just means lobster tail. But what they do, they just roll the dough so, so, so thin and start wrapping it around. Uh, it's either dusted with like sugar or if you want to do some flavoring, but it's that rolling that gives you the flakiness, the sheets. And then there's uh, phyllo dough in Greece, you know, it's the same thing, very, very, very thin dough that is just stacked on top of each other. Um, and then the last pastry that I tried doing was, um, I, I don't wanna get this, I wanna say it's a Romanian apple strudel. Um, I might be wrong about that. I can't remember the country right now. But it was the same thing. Instead of, uh, they just pull the dough kind of like when you make pizza. Um, so it would be paper thin across the table. And then apples would be set around it. And you just roll it. And you end up with this very flaky pastry that doesn't have like all the butter that you're supposed to do or supposed to use when you're making croissants. I thought it was very interesting. So there, there are ways to have something flaky without using butter. Taylor grew up in Guadalajara, Mexico, but often spent time in the small town where her mother was raised and her grandmother still lived. While I was growing up, I got to go to this very small town where things are done, were done very differently than in the city. Like every weekend, once a month, I spent summer vacation there, winter break, you know, anytime. Um, and it was just really cool. You know, I don't think a lot of, I mean, things are more, things are different in Mexico, but I got very lucky to have that like very old world Mexico right at my fingertips with also being able to experience the city. Um, one of my favorite things that my grandmother used to do, she would wake us up very early in the morning, um, like 5 a.m. on like a Sunday, and she would take us to the stable, and this farmer guy would put some like cocoa powder in a cup with some sugar and milk the cow straight into the cup. So you get this like super thick, foamy beverage. I loved it. It was, it was so good. They call it pajarete over there. It just means basically like bird singing, you know? My grandma would bring a little bottle of tequila and put some in hers, but that's another story. <laughs> Masaryk is a lifelong Chicagoan whose food upbringing was based in traditional foods. Grew up on the southwest side of Chicago in um, near Midway Airport, which at the time was a 
very like working class Polish neighborhood. And so I uh, lived in a three flat. Uh, my mom and I lived on the top floor. My grandparents lived on the middle floor and my great grandma lived in the basement. And so it's a lot of um, Polish people together in one uh, building and um, lived there until I was uh, 10. And then my mom and I moved to the suburbs um, for, you know, like the usual sort of racist um, <laughs> reasons in terms of looking for better schools and like um, some things that uh, as that neighborhood was changing as they would have said at the time um, that they thought they could find there but my grandparents actually remained in that house for a while so I would spend my weekends there um, basically most of my growing up um, and it was a my family um, ate a lot of uh, like we cooked a lot. We didn't go out very often. Uh, basically, sort of traditional Polish stuff, which as a kid I wasn't very attracted to uh, in terms of my palate. I don't know if it just wasn't developed enough or you just always rebel against what your family does when you're a kid. I'm not sure. Um, but I, um, I didn't love that stuff. And so it was like always attracted to like pizza and hot dogs and cheeseburgers and things like that although now in retrospect I think the food they were making was really good I just didn't I just didn't eat it very often um, the the thing that was a little odd about my family was that for whatever reason they were um, wary of processed foods and I'm not exactly sure what that came from but like we were never would eat fast food and I actually didn't eat at a McDonald's until I was in college um, because it was like talked about as this thing that just like wasn't good for you even though we were eating like the food they were making wasn't very good for you either but I guess it was home cooked which they saw as very different and so that's kind of how I my early palate was formed. He began Lottie and Doof 12 years ago when he was coming out of grad school with a master of fine arts and wanted to find a creative outlet that would speak to a broader demographic than he spent grad school surrounded by. I started reading food blogs in grad school and was like I, I, there's something I liked about the potential that the audience was people all over the country that like a lot of people could have access to something like a blog and so when I started it I thought it would be an interesting way to kind of present recipes and then uh, squeeze in other kinds of content and sort of sneak in conversations about other things with the food because I think people were going obviously for like the recipe um, especially at that time but I think then I would um, you know do a rant about uh, the food culture media or domestic life or whatever and they would kind of have to read that or get tricked into reading it and I was interested in trying to have these conversations with people that weren't naturally looking for them or engaging in them, which I guess is maybe um, sort of a weird and intense thing to do, but um, I found it kind of satisfying. And my own interest was mostly, I was thinking a lot about, um, I'd also fallen in love and gotten married during this time, and I was also thinking a lot about domestic life and the roles in a house and like being married to a man, I still, um, there was this weird thing in which I did all the cooking and domestic care of our place. And it made me really relate to my grandmother, Lottie, who the blog is named after. Um, she had sort of an intense um, anger towards domestic duties. Um, I think she was in a fairly, uh, 
<laughs> I don't know how um, pure her choice of husband was. I think that like um, she, there were some regrets in her life, and she did not love her role as a homemaker. And I was thinking a lot about sort of her anger and my ch and her lack of choice in some ways, and then my own choice of that. But I still felt some of the anger, and that was interesting to me. And so, sort of the roles within a house and how they relate to gender or like relationship roles was became really interesting to me. And I think that's what I was thinking about in terms of politics for me. Having spent his entire life in Chicago. Masaryk doesn't see any of its perceived issues in restaurant culture as that unique. I think that there is a lot to criticize about anywhere. Um, I think, though, that that article felt fairly weak to me um, in a few ways. One in which it sort of approached Chicago from a New York or L.A. point of view, which I don't know why we want to be or would be judged by those same um, things. And uh, I also thought it left out a lot of the actual problems about Chicago in terms of segregation and racism and who has access to what kind of food um, that weren't addressed, which to me seemed like more significant problems than that we don't have enough Michelin stars, which like I, I like thought we'd all agreed that like when Michelin came to Chicago, like the first list was just such nonsense that like I thought we, and maybe this is like every city thinks this, but we, I thought we were all on the same page that like this isn't a, a scale that matters to us. And then um, the writers seemed to think it mattered a lot. So it felt sort of silly to me. It also felt like factually inaccurate in that like he said that there was like no national press, but it was 2017, which is just last year, that Bon Appetit said it was the best city in the country for food. So it also, there were things like that that I was like, I don't actually understand what is happening here. But you know, I think that being critical of Chicago's food scene is super important. I just wish that um, a different article had, had um, highlighted that. For Taylor, the food scene as a whole is lacking, but it has nothing to do with the loss of Michelin stars in the city scene. I'm moving away from Michelin stars. I think that the concept is very tiring. And, you know, back to politics, it's just so elitist to present the sort of food. And sure, it's beautiful. And sure, sure it's made with care. But who can eat that? You can't have that in your neighborhood. You can't, that, you can't eat that every day. Even if you have the means to eat that every day, do you even want to? Um, so it's exciting to see that uh, more chefs and restaurants... Mm. More chefs in Chicago are moving towards like that ugly, delicious food. You know, maybe it's not Instagrammable. Maybe there's nothing to look at, but it's it's so good, and that's why you keep coming back to those. Um, that's what I'm stuck on. I'm. I understand that aesthetics are important, but I'm so done with aesthetics and food. You know, I'm I'm very tired of beautiful food that is very nice to look at because it's, it's all fake. There's no substance. It rarely tastes any good. And it turns out that it's just made with um, stuff that are edible, but edible does not mean it tastes good. There are no conclusions here about whether Chicago is a good vegan city or whether that's a thing that even exists. What could be true is that vegetables are no longer second-class citizens across the board that they're appreciated on their own merits, and that a meal without a big hunk of flesh no longer strikes the majority as a strange and unfulfilling option. Plants are everywhere, if you know where to look. 